podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Phillips Laven of the 1012 Podcast here. Have you been listening to this show for a while and thought, you know, if that guy can do this, then so can I? Well, you're, you're probably right. And it's worth giving a shot. The one question you're going to ask yourself is, how do I get my podcast out for everyone to listen to on iTunes, on Spotify? Well, you're going to need a hosting site. And if I may make a suggestion, go with Anchor. It's easy and it's free, which is great for podcast hobbyists uh, who aren't exactly expecting this to make a lot of income, especially starting out. Anchor is fantastic. Anchor by Spotify is the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need in one place. It has the tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And when hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your show on listening platforms like we mentioned Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And again, it is totally free. It's fantastic. It is what we use. And if it's what we use, it's what we're going to suggest to others. So download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Again, that is the Anchor app or anchor.fm to get started with your podcast. Welcome to the 1012, the podcast that covers all 10 teams in the Big 12 Conference. I'm your host, Philip Slavin. Thank you for joining us today. Yes, it will be 12 and probably 14 and maybe one day 14 again. Eh, whatever. We have a loaded show, and I mean a loaded show, that got thrown completely out of whack of what was the original plan. I know on Monday we're like, we're going to bring Andy on and talk about Kansas if they win the national championship. We're not doing that today. Why? Not because Andy couldn't make it, but because Bob Bowlesby decided to announce that he was going to step down from the uh, being the commissioner of the Big 12 uh, a day after, not even a full 24 hours after Kansas wins the national championship. Thanks, Bob. We're going to talk about Bob, uh, Ari Temkin, Sirius XM Radio, does Big 12 Radio. He's going to join us to talk about Bowlesby, the impact of this, what's next, and yes, we're going to go down some deep rabbit hole about divisions versus uh, the, as I like to call it, protected rivalries model, which is really just the three plus six model. We get way in the weeds. It doesn't matter. It's really good. Uh, I also have a fantastic interview that I think you guys are really going to like. Uh, First time on the show, but I promise it will not be his last time. Brian Bedford of Recruit Route. We're going to talk about recruiting and the ever-changing landscape. And this is like part, let's just call this part one of a very long recruiting conversation we're going to be having with Brian over the summer I think you guys really, really are going to like this. He has a lot of insight. He's worked in and around college recruiting for a long time. He used to be like the lead recruiter, the guy who ran recruiting for TCU football. Now he runs an agency that helps parents and kids figure out the recruiting process because it is much more complicated than you and I realize if you've never actually gone through it. I haven't. I have learned a lot. I think you guys are going to like him. But uh, before we get to both of them, real quick, big news. Big news on Sunday. Keep your eyes peeled, especially if you're on Twitter, on Homefield Apparel. Homefield Apparel, big news Sunday. Not big news Sunday, but there are some big news on Sunday. They're doing some updates over the next few weeks. They're going to update the collections for schools that have already been released. I can't tell you who's going to get an update. Do I know who's going to get an update? I do. Should you all kind of keep your eyes on it? You should. Let me just say this. Here's what I know. Homefield's going to make a lot of Big 12 fans happy this year. 
a lot of Big 12 fans happy this year. So keep your eyes peeled on Sunday. Don't forget promo code NETWORK12, N-E-T-W-O-R-K-1-2 on your first order gets you 15% off. Updates are starting. Keep your eyes on Sunday. You're going to find out some of the schools for this coming week. Just trust me. You are going to be excited about what is coming out from the brand, the good brand, Homefield Apparel, the maker of the most comfortable vintage college sports belt. I am rocking my Pistol Patty shirt from them right now because Oklahoma State softball is playing and this is my OSU softball shirt that I wear like all the time. I love it. It's so good. It's so comfy. It's so awesome. Okay, Homefield Apparel, make sure and pay attention to them this weekend. Speaking of softball, my good friend, Melina Sanchez back with me today, our uh, softball expert, as I like to call you, because I'm I'm learning. I'm learning as best and as quickly and as fast as I can. Uh, I love it, but I'm not the expert in it. Uh, Melina, today we're gonna make our picks for this weekend's Big Twelve series. We have three again, as usual. Uh, you are a perfect six and zero. Oh, I am five and one. I have, I've, I'm almost gonna have to like pick against you somewhere at some point if I'm gonna try and catch up. I have a feeling that's probably not going to happen. But before we get to that, real quick. Today, I decided I want us to rank our top five Big 12 pitchers. Now, I want to start with this. It's going to be a lot of the same team in here. And I tried really hard not to. Really hard. And I mean, I dug through everything, looked at fielding, tried to create, okay, well, maybe this can... It's going to be a little lopsided, and I'm sorry, but it just is. And Melina, I have a feeling yours is going to be as well. Yeah, you say that we agree a lot on, on the weekend series. Well, we're going to probably agree on these pitchers as well. Yeah. Uh, okay, so let's go five to one. Uh, who is number five for you? For me, I got uh, Texas's Haley Dolcini. She's got a 2.43 ERA. She throws a lot of innings for Texas. She's gone 101 innings this year. She really emerged as the ace of the staff. She's a leader. She's got that grit. Last year, she played for Fresno State, and she threw in that UCLA regional, almost had him in a super regional, beating a very talented UCLA team. So she has that it factor. So I really love her. She's really carrying the staff, really trying to figure things out, coming into a new team, coming into a new conference, better conference than she was in when she was in the Mountain West last year with um, uh, Fresno State. So she's adjusting, she's learning, and she's getting better. So that's a good sign for Texas. I agree. I, I really almost went with with Elish just because of the way she is playing as of late. Like we, she had that rough start to the year. We talked about that for Oklahoma State, but Miranda Elish is playing better and better and better. And I think by the end of the year, we can put her at five. But because Dulcini has had to pitch so many innings, has 120 28 strikeouts, which I believe is third most in the Big 12 at this point, on a team in Texas who. Their fielding is not great. As a team, they are sixth. That's second to last in the Big 12 in fielding. So it's not like she's getting a ton of help from the defense out in the field around here. So I will agree here. I will put Dulcini at five as well. Uh, who is your number four? Number four, I got sophomore Nicole May from Oklahoma. She's got a 0.95 ERA. She's 9-0 on the year. She's thrown the least amount of innings on that OU staff with only 44, giving up six turns runs. But she has some big wins against Arizona. She got a big win against Texas State. She uh, led her team um, in, a in a win against Baylor. And she also closed out that win in California against Tennessee. Doherty Ball, of course, started that game. That game went to extra innings. Nicole May came in through 1.2 innings, shut the door. Uh, she's really been a, a driving force for that Oklahoma staff. All three of those pitchers at Oklahoma, they really help each other out. They really complement each other very well. I have Nicole May at uh, number four. She's only going to get better with time. She's still a, she's just a sophomore. 
Okay, so here's where we're finally going to vary a little bit. Uh, I'm going to put Trotwin here. And people are going to say, how do you put the pitcher with the lowest ERA, uh, the fewest runs given up, the fewest earned runs given up, the fewest, uh, a second fewest walk, no, third fewest walks in the Big 12? Like, okay, maybe it's fourth. It's low. <laughs> like, she's been phenomenal for Oklahoma. But all three pitchers have been phenomenal for Oklahoma. And as you and I have talked about, the difference between what she has done versus Ball and May is look at who they have pitched against. Uh, May has done less with only 44 innings. Trotwin has pitched 54. But I think based off the level of competition that Trotwin has been put out there against versus Ball and May and what they have been asked to do, look, one earned run, I don't care who you're playing. I don't care if you're playing a school of the blind 18 games in a row. Only giving up one earned run is incredibly impressive, okay? But I'm going to put her at fourth here. So who is your number three? Well, number three, you said it all. For me, it is Hope Trotwine. She does lead the staff with a 0.13 ERA. Like you said, the competition is not as great. But you cannot deny, like you said, I don't care who you're playing. I don't care if you're playing junior varsity at the high school. Giving up one earned run in 54.2 innings is immaculate. And she's she's. I think she's a leader for that staff. Nicole May, a sophomore. Jordy Ball, a freshman. Uh, Hope Trotwine is a redshirt senior. She has a lot of experience. If you remember when she was with UNT, she threw a perfect game, 21 strikeouts, 21 outs. So I think she's really been a leader for that staff, and that has really helped Nicole May and Jordy Ball uh, come into their own a little bit. Uh, so I guess we're not that far off from each other. I've got May 3rd uh, over Trotwin again. I think while she has been asked to do less as far as any pitch goes, uh, and nine er, uh, uh, six earned runs, seven runs total, 28 hits, uh, ERA of, of 0.95. I think I just put it here because she has had to face tougher opponents than Trotwood has. So, and again, we're not talking about like 10th versus second here. It's fourth and third. So you can go back and forth whichever way you want. This is, we're, this is just nitpicking at differences here between two pitchers who have been absolutely phenomenal this year. Uh, okay, who do you have number two? Number two, I got Kelly Maxwell. She's really the ace of the staff for Oklahoma State. She's one that you can really rely on, especially earlier in the year when Ellis was struggling, Day was struggling. You could still really count on Maxwell to be the girl. At the beginning of the year, um, she had a big win against Michigan, had that one nothing win against over A&M, won that game against Stanford. The next game, Ellis comes in, struggles, they lose that game. So she's really, really the, the strong one in that staff and you can really rely on her if we had if we had a big game going on you needed to win one game you really want kelly maxwell in the circle with the 1.03 era she's 12 and 0 the a leader in the big 12 in strikeouts with 158 only 13 earned runs so she's she's a horse she's uh she's amazing i really really like her um who i have at number one i don't think anybody any of us can debate that that person is not number one but kelly maxwell is certainly is certainly close and and she's been a really uh I mean, I can only imagine what Oklahoma State would be like if they didn't have Kelly Maxwell. I don't think they'd have as many wins on the year as they do now. Kelly Maxwell really is is that that it girl for them, and she's fantastic. Uh, I agree. I have Maxwell as well for all the same reasons you do. Um, okay, so we both have Jordy Ball at number one. Nothing surprising there. Um, I think she is probably – she is the best pitcher in the Big 12. She has an absolute argument to make for best pitcher – in the country. Um, why do you have ball at number one? I have Jordy ball at number one because she doesn't pitch like a freshman. Uh, Coach Gasso threw her in against UCLA and she performed well, dominated that game. 
threw in against a big SEC opponent in Tennessee. No big deal. Had 16 strikeouts. She didn't get the win. Nicole May came in because they had that extra inning game. It was a fantastic game to watch. And then comes it's that gutsy win against Utah. She's got 130 strikeouts, only 17 walks. That's just insane. Um, the, I was watching the Texas UT Arlington game today and what kills you and what kills everybody, even in the Iowa State series against Texas is the walks. When you don't walk, the less you walk, the more you win. Those walks really kill you. The, the amount of runs that come in when you walk people, the percentage is pretty high. Jordy Ball's got a 0.80 ERA, 14 and 0. Opponents are hitting 127 off her, only nine earned runs. She does not pitch like a freshman. When Coach Gasso wants her in against big competition, she performs. Yeah, uh, it's good grief. It's ridiculous. So we talk about 35 hits, uh, 17 walks. Uh, let's see. So she's got a .66 whip as well, if my math is correct here. It, it's ridiculous. Like I, I, She absolutely has a case for best pitcher in the country. I want to ask this before we make our picks for the weekend. I think she's going to win pitcher of the year in the Big 12. But I think a case can be made for Kelly Maxwell to be a legitimate candidate next to her because, as we mentioned, whereas Ball is surrounded by two other pitchers whose ERAs are below one, who are absolutely ridiculous, whose um, whips are all below one, whose uh, strikeout-to-walk to ratio is ridiculous. Maxwell had Ellis. She's playing well now. She's pitching so much better as of late. Uh, but she didn't start season. Neither did Morgan Day. O- Maxwell has carried this team. And look, the defense for OSU is really good. They're the best fielding unit in the Big 12. But I think I can make a case because I don't think o- OSU doesn't have the roster that OSU does. Well, it's not like they're we're talking drastically different. But, I mean, they don't. And so what Maxwell has been for Oklahoma State has been even more important than, to me, even Ball has been for Oklahoma. Yeah, when you think MVP, MVP stands for most valuable player, not best player. I think we can both agree that Jordy Ball probably is the best player in the Big 12. She's the best pitcher for sure. She might even be the best player. I mean, I don't know, right? But uh, we can debate that another day. But Kelly Maxwell is is it for her team. Like if we take Jordy Ball off the Oklahoma staff, they'd probably be just as good. If we take Kelly Maxwell off the Oklahoma State staff, I don't think Oklahoma State would be as good. She really is a driving force for that team. She carries that team. She's phenomenal. So when I think value, I think Kelly Maxwell is very, is really valuable to her team more than Jordy Ball would be for Oklahoma. Yeah. Again, you're like, guys, there's, we're just debating the difference. In, in verbiage, because a lot of times everyone has different philosophies on on what MVP should be. Should it be the best player, or should it be the one who is most valuable for this season to their team? All right, we got three Big 12 series this weekend we got to talk about. Let's make picks. Uh, let's start off in Ames, Iowa. Oklahoma State traveling to an Iowa State team that gave Texas a ton of trouble last week. Texas went ahead and swept that series like we thought they would, but I mean... Iowa State had leads both on Friday and Saturday and could not hold on to them. OSU, man, uh, my gut says OSU is just going to sweep them. My heart says that. My gut says Iowa State might snag one because because I Baylor almost got one from Oklahoma State last weekend. Now, look, the bats woke up. But, I mean, on Saturday, Maxwell pitched a shutout, and, and the Cowgirls were able to get a 2-0 win. OSU can win these close games. Iowa State's a little bit fluky. 
I think I'm going to go ahead and just say Oklahoma State sweeps. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I love Iowa State. I really do. I want success for them this year, but I just, I don't trust them. Man, they're at home though. You know what? Forget it. I'm going to go 2-1. OSU 2-1. I think Iowa State steals one. I'm going to disagree with you there. I think Oklahoma State goes 3-0. We just went on a tangent about how fantastic Kelly Maxwell is. I expect her to continue being fantastic. You know, we expect Elish to go in and get some wins. But if Elish or Day, if Day gets an appearance, if they struggle at all, I think Kelly Maxwell will come in and shut the door. Iowa State, they did give Texas fits, but the pitching just wasn't on for Texas. Uh, Texas is very lucky that I have a very great hitting team. They lead Division One in hits. They're second in Division One in doubles. So they got very lucky there. Um, but I think Kelly Maxwell and Oklahoma State, their offense, uh, I think it's just getting better. They're second behind Oklahoma um, in hitting, hitting 316, slugging 533. Um, they're, they're, just, they're doing a lot better with the hitting, 50 home runs, really not there, but they're figuring things out. I think they sweep Iowa State at Iowa State. Although I was very impressed with Iowa State, Jamie Pinkerton, I think he's a fantastic coach. Hadn't really watched a lot of Iowa State softball, but the way he, he runs his program, the way they don't give up, the way they believe in each other. I really uh, did like the way Iowa State played, but I think Oklahoma State's just too good. Now, we are big fans of Pinkerton here on the on the 10-12 podcast. He's been a guest here, and, and then being a guest doesn't mean we automatically like you, but we like him. Uh, <laughs> Oklahoma, Texas Tech, OU traveling to Lubbock. Um, this is, I'm sorry, this is a sweep. Uh, it's just, it is. Uh, I don't think we need to debate this one. I think we can move on. I think we all know Oklahoma State. Oh, I'm sorry, Oklahoma will sweep. We just went on a tangent about their three fantastic pitchers, and we can move on. <laughs> Yeah. Sorry. Uh, I, sorry, Tag. I, I hate it, but it's just how I feel. Uh, Baylor, Kansas is the interesting one. Uh, anytime we get two of the non OU OSU Texas teams facing off each other with each other, we have an interesting opportunity. That said, set the records aside. I think Baylor is the fourth best team in the Big 12, and I think they are the Big 12's best shot at getting a fourth team into postseason this year. And for them to do that, I mean, again, they they. Almost got a win over Oklahoma. They had a really close game against Oklahoma State. Baylor has had tons of close calls, kind of like Texas Tech. But Baylor has been able to at least get a few of those wins that Texas Tech has not been able to this year. Kansas is just, like, they've got a few pieces that are nice. Um, but I I, I know it's it, it's in Lawrence. But i got to be honest, I think Baylor sweeps this one. Yeah, I agree. I, th- I think Baylor suits this one too. I agree with you. Baylor's a good team. They just have a lot of inconsistencies. I think Orme has been throwing really well for Baylor. She's a Fresno straight transfer. She's only, she's getting up 65 runs, but only 41 of them are earned. So her defense doesn't help her out a lot. Speaking of defense and pitching, Kansas is dead last in the big 12 in both pitching and fielding. So they don't help out their pitchers at all. Their pitching is not that great to begin with. So I think it's a clean sweep for Baylor this weekend as well. Yeah. The pitching is just not there for Kansas. Um, Lyric Moore hitting the ball very well for Kansas. So I expect that they can put up a few runs uh, or may is not consistent enough for me to think that Kansas won't score. This is going to be shut up. But I, I think, and I, honestly, again, like part of this is let me play the, the big 12, big head kind of view of what's the best thing for the big 12. The best thing for the big 12 is to get an extra team or two into the postseason. And right now I think those best, the best chances for that based off of RPI are Baylor and Texas tech, but Texas tech continues to fall back further. I think we're at this point, if Baylor can't do it, I'm I'm not sure anyone else is going to be able to. I agree. I'm with right. you there. Melina, you're awesome as always. Uh, hey, I've got one different from you, which I'm sure means you will just continue to grow your lead on me here. That's okay. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, we'll be back with you again next week, Melina. Always a pleasure. Don't forget, keep your eye on Homefield Apparel for the first uh, round of updates that they'll be announcing on Sunday. 
Just keep an eye on it. You're going to want it to and continue to do so over the next coming weeks. All right. Two great guests. We're talking recruiting. We are talking Bob Bowlesby and the future of the Big 12. Coming up next. There's only one place to get the best daily audio coverage of the Kansas Jayhawks, and that's here on the Rock Chalk Podcast. Join me, your host, Andy Metz, every weekday as we go through all the biggest stories affecting your favorite college teams, whether that's football, basketball, tennis, soccer, baseball, softball, volleyball, or any other team that the Kansas Jayhawks put forward. If there's a story to cover, we grab a guest from across the sports landscape and bring that story to you. Find it now wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Obviously, we had a plan for this week's show, and that got thrown out the window on Tuesday when when Bob Bowlesby announced that he would be stepping down later this year as the commissioner of the Big 12 Conference, and somebody new will be in charge of this thing if if what has been told is accurate within the next 90 days. So, of course, we've got to talk about that today, uh, and I wanted to bring somebody on who, on who who knows the Big 12 well and talks about the Big 12 on a regular basis. That would be our good friend Ari Temkin, covered the Big 12 for Sirius XM College Radio uh Ari welcome back man appreciate having me buddy thank you so this this kind of came out of nowhere I mean we're all still uh talking about and excited about Kansas cutting down the nets and giving the Big 12 their second straight men's NCAA national championship and then all of that comes to a screeching halt because Bob Bowlesby is going to be stepping down and somebody new is going to be in charge of the conference by uh, the start of the 2022 college football season and 2022 college athletics season I mean, let's talk about the timing of this first. Uh, I get the feeling that this has been coming for a little bit, and uh, it, it almost feels like they were just waiting for the Big 12's Batman and women's basketball seasons to wrap up before they went ahead and put this out. I mean, it's a great question because the timeline is questionable here. Um, you know, you, you, you don't want to cut off your nose to spite your face when it comes to um, – headlines and stealing your own headlines but um that appears to be the case here i mean you know and not even 24 hours after kansas went to second consecutive national championship for the big 12 this news comes out now you know everything we've heard indicates that it was you know had been delayed in terms of this was news that had been in the works for a couple of weeks and so you know the timing of it is only a matter of that and and you know I, i'm not sure all i know is when it comes to PR and marketing, not a great idea to have, you know, really impactful news affecting your conference come out in the wake of your second consecutive national championship in basketball. No, uh, it's not uh, definitely, but it does. The more I've thought about this over the last 24 hours since the news came out, you know, um, it's been said they want a new AD within 90 days. I believe that was Texas Tech's um, yep. school president, uh, university president, came out and said as much. I said stuff to um, forgive me that I just forgot Max Olson of The Athletic uh, and a few other people who have reported this as well. Um, it does feel like for the Big 12, the timing makes a little bit of sense. We are out of the Oklahoma and Texas are leaving shock. We know the new teams that are joining the conference. Um, there are a lot of things that have to be dealt with, negotiating early exits for the three new schools out of the AAC to come to the Big 12 by 2023, um, figuring out if Oklahoma and Texas really are going to stick around until 2025. Um, you've got new media contracts that you're going to have to negotiate coming up, I believe, in 2024. So there's, you're almost in 
what I feel like is going to be the most quiet part before it really starts rolling, right? Before things really start getting crazy. And you need to move quickly. You need to get somebody on board. I'm sure they have a short list. We can talk about that in a minute. Uh, because you need to get them acclimated and ready to go because once they, they, they're going to have to hit the ground running very quickly. So this is a very small window. I agree from a PR standpoint, waiting a couple more days probably wouldn't have hurt them. You know, this is, this felt more like a, a Friday news dump that we should normally get as opposed to a, a Tuesday in the middle of the day kind of story. But from the timing standpoint of the day after the national championship, not great. This point in time, looking at the current Big 12 and college sports timeline, I think this makes a lot of sense for the Big 12 and for Bob Ballsby. Oh, I agree with that. You know, and and I'm not surprised by it um, because I think you can make a case that some of the moves that he's made recently are not good for this conference. And so you can make the case that this is a move that needed to happen. Um, and, and we actually have Bowlesby. Bob is going to come on with us on big 12 radio on Thursday morning at nine 30 central. And so I'm just be curious, you know, from his vantage point about it, like you know, that exact thing, the timeline, why that makes sense now. Um, you know, their reports are that, um, you know, it, it's the move that he wanted to make. I'm not, sure of that i definitely think there was more of the board of directors and 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 power brokers in the conference that were ready to move on and, and find some new blood um so yeah i mean i i agree i think you know you're reaching a point in time over the next 90 days where um you probably have to make a move if you're going to um so yeah i mean i yeah agreed timeline wise it's, it's probably where you needed to be only you know, it's just odd again to kind of kill your own headlines. Agreed. Agreed on that point. Yeah, from from what we've read, it's being sold as a Bob kind of felt like this was the time and people agreed with him. I, I get the feeling like you do. It's a little bit more uh, mutual parting of ways than just Bob deciding and everyone going, yeah, you know what? You're right. Why not? Let's go ahead and do this now. Um, I feel like- I'm not even sure it's mutual, honestly, Phil. Like I nobody walks away from a job like that you know i mean even if you're 70 yeah granted after everything that's gone on for the past um i mean even year to this point um I, I'd, I'd probably be like you know what this feels like a good time to cut and run uh, <laughs> also i mean the idea of bob bowlsby leaving the big 12 before oklahoma texas do still just tickles me funny um right I, I, there's gonna be a lot of time to talk about Bob Olsby legacy. And I think most people typically on Twitter scene and social happy to see him go, uh, both remaining big 12 members and soon to be no longer big 12 members alike. I think I've kind of viewed Bob a lot of the times as a peacetime general, someone who was just supposed to keep the boat on course while, while the water was, was still and easy. Um, we can judge how well he did that um, to some extent, probably not super great to some extent. I don't think there's anything he could have done to keep Oklahoma and Texas in the big 12 when they decided right. they were going to leave. There was a little bit of 50, 50 there. Ha ha 11 a.m. kickoffs, whatever. Um, but looking forward and we're talking about all the things that are coming up, somebody has to hit the ground running. If you were to in charge of picking the next person up and kind of marking off your checklist, 
What are some of the things you believe that the board and the school presidents and athletic directors will be looking at uh, for the next candidate? Yeah. And, and look, I think number one, Bob Bowlesby saved the big 12. Okay. Let's start there. Yeah. All right. So the big 12 was in a very bad situation. The first time there was conference realignment and Bob Bowlesby came in and saved the conference. He, so we can't diminish that. The, Bob Bowlesby is a lifetime administrator and has been a very, very successful and good leader in this capacity. But when somebody in a leadership position gets you to a certain spot, and then that person no longer brings that same value, that's where I think the conference is. I think the conference has figured out at this point that Bowlesby's experience is no longer a, an attribute. It's no longer a positive, you know? And, and so they're tr- now they're trying to figure out what are the attributes necessary for the next successful commissioner of the conference. And that's a tough task. Cause like, I agree. It probably was time to move on from Bob Bowlesby. The issue is if you move on with the wrong person mm-hmm. and they're going to have plenty of candidates, the big thing is going to be, should they go outside the college athletics world? Like the PAC 12 did and get a, a George Klyavkov type. Uh, or do you stay inside the college athletics world and find somebody that is well-versed in it? Uh, I think you definitely need somebody that uh, is well-versed in negotiations and not necessarily TV negotiations, but just in, in understanding how to negotiate and get the best deal. Uh, they've got to get somebody that's creative that can, can leverage the positives of the new look conference um, as opposed to harping on, um, you know, the loss of Texas and Oklahoma, what that means. We know they're gone. We know they're going to be, it's going to be a tough loss. So where, where do we, like, what's the next big football game for the conference when Texas and Oklahoma leave, right? Like what, what's the tent flagpole football game? Um, Those are the kinds of things the new commissioner has to be thinking about. I I lean more towards, you know, the Oliver Luck type. I know that's a name that's been thrown out there. Um, Somebody that's been in, in, in college athletics, but also has experiences outside of college athletics being a CEO, um, I, I think that's important, but it's all about the TV contract. It's up in 2025. They've got to get somebody that can maximize that TV deal. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, on the topic of outside of college athletics versus inside, both Pac-12 and the Big Ten's last big hires came from, from outside of college athletics. And I, to some extent, I think both of those moves by the Big Ten and the Pac-12 are warning signs for the Big 12. You you look at how both conferences have kind of handled things since their new commissioners have come in, and it is taking them time to get things figured out. Kevin Warren did not handle the COVID issues well. He did not. No. He was not handled by someone who understood college athletics. It wasn't, period. Pac-12 seems to be moving very slowly. Some of the comments and stuff that have come out about Klyavkov seem contradictory to each other. I think for the Big 12... Yes. With the timeline you have, you have to get somebody able to get, like we said, moving quickly. I think it would be to their benefit to bring somebody who understands, at least, if not if not completely college athletics, at least university systems. Whether that's a school president, uh, a current sitting AD, uh, uh, a, a conference executive of some level. I, I don't think you can, I don't think this is the right time to try and reinvent the wheel about things you kind of need somebody who has the basic understanding of how this stuff operates 
that can do so quickly without having to spend six months to a year getting acclimated to how this stuff works. Yep. I, I agree with that. Um, because there has been a grace period. I think you're right. There has been a point of time of figuring it out. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, we could sit here and talk about all the different factors and things that go into it, but it, it really is just about the TV deal. Like it, it, when you look at where the big 12 is relative to the sec and the big 10, when you look at where the big 12 is relative to the PAC 12 and the ACC, the long-term viability of this conference depends on their ability to make up the two to one shortfall that they have in TV money. Cause that's where it is. The sec is going to be making twice as much. And perhaps in some cases, th- three times as much from its TV deal than the rest of the conferences. So there really is nothing more important for the long-term viability of this conference than securing the best TV deal because, you know, a three to one loss of TV revenue to the SEC is so detrimental because that's compounding every single year. And that's where it is right now. So you're falling so far behind the SEC and the big 10 every year. So your future is only set by the amount of money you can make up in the TV deal. And it, so it's about creativity. It's about figuring out where your assets are. It's about figuring out what to highlight and then figuring out how to best sell that and package that, um, you know, to, to TV partners. But um, so at the end of the day, whoever you hire, and that's why maybe Oliver Luck would be the best for it. Because again, he kind of brings the experience of being a CEO, you know, having negotiated television contracts before having been a, a, a you know, college administrator before, um, I think those all play into it. it, but again, nothing more important here, Phil, than, than, um, than that TV deal. I got to get that TV deal, right? So, so two thoughts here, one luck, uh, luck was, I mean, as we has been reported, I can't validate any of this reportedly, at least a under consideration with the PAC 12 eventually hired Klyavkov. We know that Oliver Luck consulted uh, with the Big 12 when they were trying to figure out what teams to bring in before eventually choosing BYU, Houston, UCF, and, and Cincinnati. Oliver Luck worked with, um, if, if people aren't aware, Bowlesby Sports Advisors. If that last name sounds familiar, that's because it is an advisory uh, business run by the son of soon-to-be former Big 12 commissioner Bob Bowlesby. Um, in case you want some connections of why Luck's name is going to get brought up a lot. Now, whether he is the answer or not, I don't know. I think there are others, some other good candidates, and the lists I've seen are so long that I'm like, look, I can only, I, I, I don't have time to sit and deep dive on this. But I would, I would guess that most of the names you've seen are on the Big 12 shortlist that already exists. I, they've obviously known this information for long enough. This isn't like they're starting today. They, they've had time to prepare and, and know a list of candidates that they want to figure out, especially if you right. have a 90-day window. Um, on the TV contract side, there's a harsh reality I think we have to start living with and a conversation we have to start having. Um, that is, the Big 12 cannot sit and say, well, the SEC and the Big 10 is going to do this. The Big 12 has to be more concerned with, to me, staying ahead of the ACC and the Pac-12, because right now, that's where they are. The Big 12 schools, in current form, make more money individually, individually, not total contract, individually per school, than the Pac-12 and the ACC do. Um, The projection we saw on Twitter, I think, last week, I forget who put that out, showed that the ACC and Pac-12 would eventually surpass the Big 12. And if you're the Big 12, this isn't about worrying about the mansions down the street it's can you keep your house nicer than the ones right around you in your neighborhood and right now that's the pac 12 in the acc um that to me is where if you can keep ahead of them 
or at least right on par and not fall behind those two conferences who outside of a couple of schools at each don't sniff the Big 12, frankly. Like, I, I think that's where I would say that's where I'm setting my sights. You have to sell that, you know, we're going to win the national championship, but that's not a realistic goal right now. You're not going to make what the SEC and the Big 10 does. So can you stay on par with the other two power conferences to keep yourself in their vein and, and, and competing at that level? Well, and that's a given. You know what I mean? Like I, I mentioned them in comparison to the SEC, but 100%, it's a given um, that, you know, your sights need to be set on the Pac-12 and the ACC. The problem is, you know, the ACC obviously is in a bad situation because they have to, um, you know, the, they're they're locked into their TV deal. For until so like they, 2035. They really, right. And it's not a good deal. Ooh. And so, like, all this is happening at once, Philip, and it's like, what – what happens if Clemson suddenly wakes up and they're like, we need to go to the SEC because we can't do this, you know, again, losing money three to one to the SEC every year. That's your biggest competitor for your Clemson. If you're Florida State, you're Clemson, and you want to be competing for national championships, but you're losing three to one money, hand over fist to the SEC every year, you don't have an option. Your, your only ability to stay viable is to go somewhere else like the SEC potentially. So... Who knows? Um, but all the Big 12 is in a better position than the Pac-12 and the ACC from that vantage point. The Big 12 has already lost the two programs they couldn't lose. Yeah. They've lost their, their temp poles. The Pac-12 and the ACC still could, very much could for that reason. Um, that you're, you're already falling so far behind them. Um, you have no chance to catch up. This is a... this. This is a money race like that. You know, we, we can't underplay the importance of money here and, and the straight line you could draw between money coming in, money being spent and the success of football. Um, those are related. You know, the more money you have, the more money you're investing into football, the better off you're going to be. That, that's, that's a given. So, yeah, I mean, you, you have a situation where the, the Texas's and the Oklahoma's of the Pac-12 and the ACC are going to have a decision to make here. And with the Pac-12, that could come quicker because their their TV deals up quicker than the Big 12s is. And you know, again, if Klyavkov and his inexperience don't go to USC and everybody else and say, "Come with a deal that makes sense, that gives them that long-term viability," then USC and Oregon could say, "We need to get out of here. We need to go to the Big Ten, or we need to go to the SEC." That I think is a reality that the biggest, you know, tent poles of each league are going to have to be fa- are going are, are to be facing. I'm curious now. As far as the Big 12 and a new commissioner, obviously we know the things that are, are important right now. Understanding the new landscape with NIL, understanding how to handle new TV contracts, figuring out negotiating with Oklahoma and Texas if they're going to stay or letting them leave early, which is going to cost more than you actually think, which people actually think. Um, getting the new schools <laughs> in in 2023 as opposed to having them wait another year. But those are the things we know. And obviously we can't see the future and predict what kind of insanity is going to come down the line. I know there's the, like the teams are going to separate and form their own thing. And I still have way too many questions about that to say that it's not going to happen, but also that it's going to happen the way it's described. There's too many egos. There are too many egos, too many egos, stick a bunch of egos in a room and see how much, how many things actually get done efficiently. But, but coming in, where do you see the potential value in a new commissioner that could could help the big 12 in a way that we aren't even seeing right now. There's a lot we're not seeing right now, you know, cause there's so many different factors, you know, there's, there's so many things at play at once that are converging 
they're going to create consequences, some of which, most of which we, we cannot see nor know nor project. Um, obviously, NIL, the transfer portal, two huge factors. You know, there's there's the, the changing landscape of college athletics as a whole with the Supreme Court ruling. And what does that look like when the NCAA and the I, IARP finally hand down their punishment to the University of Kansas uh, from the FBI investigation? Does Kansas then sue um, based on the Supreme Court ruling? Um, so many factors, again, to take into account that, like, again, we, we really can't know all the implications of it. I, I go back to the important pieces to the next commissioner being the ability to maximize the television deal that they can make in 2025. And in doing so, you've got to highlight the positives of this conference. Basketball is a major positive of this conference right now. It's the best basketball conference in America. This is the golden age of big 12 basketball. Um, up until in the history of the Big 12, only Kansas had played for a national championship. Texas and Oklahoma obviously had Final Fours, um, but Oklahoma State, but but only Tech Kansas had played for a national championship. Um, Oklahoma State has a Final Four, right? Yes. Recent, and the Big 12. Yeah. Eddie Sutton went to one, right? At Oklahoma State, yeah. at least one. Um, 2004, and I'm trying to remember if the one before that, I think the one before that was that was like right at the end of the big eight or beforehand. Right. So, I mean, Oklahoma state, Kansas, Texas, Oklahoma, all had final fours, but Kansas was the only team that had gone to the national championship game. Now you have three straight appearances for the big 12, the national championship game and three different schools in tech, Baylor and Kansas. You have two straight national championships with Kansas and Baylor. The ACC has had this variety of, of, you know, top heaviness. The big 10 has two where you've got different teams making national championship game appearances and winning titles. It's never happened for the big 12, obviously. And, and it's only going to get better. You know, Texas and Oklahoma leaving the conference is actually good for basketball, which sounds crazy, but it is. And I see you're nodding your head. And then you add, you know, BYU, Houston and Cincinnati to the mix, not even, you know, mentioning UCF. And, and obviously we've seen TCU's basketball turn because of uh, coming to the big 12. So there's no reason to think that UCF won as well. So focus on basketball, right? Like that's what the Big East does. It's not, it's not going to be your total breadwinner, but you have to accentuate your positives. This is the best time in the history of Big 12 basketball. And they're far and away at this point, the best conference in America for basketball. You got to figure out what, what football games are going to give us the best inventory. Mm -hmm. So figure out a way to make that happen. You know, it, it does maybe, maybe don't do divisions, get creative. <laughs> Protect and I know you and I have talked about this. I hate divisions um, in sports in general. I, I just don't understand why we draw these arbitrary geographical, you know, delineations. Like we, this isn't the 1800s. We don't have to travel by a train uh, to cities, you know, it, like just give me the two best teams. I don't understand why this is so complicated. You know, you can have divisions and split them up that way. But like at the end of the day, I just want the two best teams, the best records to play for a conference championship and not some weird, well, you play on this side, so you get an advantage to being on this side. Okay, so, so let's let's uh, we're going off topic, but I don't care. I'm going to. Okay, so we have been pushing what we call the protected rivalry scheduling model, which is everybody has three annual opponents, and then you rotate through the other eight teams in the conference for your other six conference games. We're going to stay at nine conference games in football. You want to keep one versus two. Who are the rivals? So Kansas, Kansas State. What? Well, and you get three. And I don't want to. I don't want like who. I don't want to go down the the rabbit hole of because once you do that, then everyone bails on it because they're like, well, I can't. We don't have West Virginia fans. We don't have any rivals in the Big Twelve. It's like shh, 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 shh. 
Shush. Literally, who are the rivalries? What's Texas and Oklahoma leave? What are the rivals? I mean, it's I know Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, Texas, Oklahoma. Well, but this is where you have to build. Like, this is where you have to invest in those. And by having a schedule that that focuses on three annual games against teams. Because if you do, here's the problem. Here's the problem with divisions. You have one of two options. You're either putting all of the Texas teams in one division or you're splitting them across the two. Because BYU has to be in a different division from a geographic standpoint than Cincinnati, West Virginia, and UCF. So you've already basically decided east and west. You're not doing north and south. So you're putting all the Texas teams in the west or are you splitting them? And if you split them, that means you're probably going to have to split like Iowa State. From the, so are we not going to have Farmageddon? Like, the problem with divisions is if you do divisions, you're going to have to have a cross-division rivalry or you're going to blow up any 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 of the good other rivalries you have left in the conference. You're almost better off focusing on let's try and keep the games that matter to the fans the most that we can try and market off of and then fill out the rest of the schedule from there. And I know the question okay. is, what are the best rivalries? What? And I did. <laughs> I feel like now we're going to have to. This is where this episode is now going. OK. All right. Fine. Um. Neither school does a good enough job of promoting it. They loathe each other entirely. But Farmageddon should be one of the best new rivalries in the yeah. 12. Kansas State, Iowa I State agree. should be promoted like a big deal. It should be. I you should have a ridiculous trophy. That. that one should be a big deal. Uh, TCU and Baylor have are fantastic. Like They just are. You're going to have UCF and Cincinnati playing each other. Like You just have to. That already exists. They've already played good games. You should continue to promote that one as a new rivalry in the Pick 12. Oklahoma State, it's not a rivalry, but OSU-Iowa State games have been so close and competitive of the last, ever, ever since, the last five years at least, really ever since 2011, that you, it's two of your better teams in your conference as well. Build that game up. It may not be a we hate you rivalry, but that has been a very good quality competitive game. Well, two great programs, you know, with longevity for sure. Here's my issue, Philip, with any idea of like building in rivalries and such. I think you need the flexibility, you know, because when you create absolutes, when it comes to scheduling, I think what you end up doing is hurting yourself because obviously there's going to be fluctuation with who the best teams are. And so you, I mean, you want to be in a position to where you can have the best teams playing each other because those are going to be the best games. So, I mean, I agree. Farmageddon, and when I when I asked the question, like, what are the games? The, the only game I could really think of was that game, Kansas State and Iowa State. I think you're absolutely right about Baylor and Tech and, and TCU. That's been a good one. I think Oklahoma State and TCU, I think Oklahoma State and Baylor, like, those are good games. But at the end of the day, now we're just talking about programs that have been successful over a long period of time playing each other. So I don't know that we should create absolutes when it comes to scheduling because we need the flexibility to to highlight the best games and those games might change year over year well but, Will but that's why divisions corners you into five of your games are locked the other four you've played with doing three prote- I, I say protected rivals because i don't know a better name for saying you have three it's a three plus right. six system having six, three set games means you have six flexible games that you can move around each year right the more games that you leave open to do what is going potentially the best for the conference to me is the best thing. I don't want to just 
not have anything annual. I want to protect some games and I want to create opportunities for West Virginia and Houston need to play every year, especially as long as Dana is down there at Houston. Like they just, they need to, because that's an awesome opportunity for Well, How about West Virginia, Cincinnati and basketball? There we go. And so like the idea, the biggest reason for three plus six is you keep the one versus two in the championship game. You have three games, you know, you're going to play and you can keep them geographically close to you unless you just want to have Houston. Like, and then you allow more flexibility in the rest of that nine-game schedule to try and put together the matchups we think are going to be the most interesting that year without pigeonholing yourself into saying five of these games are locked, four from the other side. Oh, wait, no, only three can rotate through because we can't. if we split up the Texas teams, they're going to want to play each other each year. By the way, we want to keep Farmageddon unless you put – like there's no perfect way to make divisions that you don't have to establish across division rivalry anyways, or you're going to blow up a rivalry. So just make it simple. Allow yourself more flexibility by having three established teams you play every year and six you can rotate through. I guess I'll accept that over the alternative. But these are all, yours is less traditional. It's it's imperfect. I know, but I'm tired. The, the SEC is about to go to pods or quads or whatever they want to call it. The Big Tens can sit, like should do this. The ACC blew it up for a year when Notre Dame came in, and everyone's like, you need to do one versus two. That's the best thing for the ACC. Like, you're seeing these situations where it's like, hey, the best thing for you is not the way you've been doing it. And you've only been doing it this way because some rule established by, like, Division two years ago. I think Ari, um, no, uh, no um, one of the athletic guys, did a whole article about it. And I, I'm going to forget which one it was. Like you have an opportunity here if you're the big 12 to do something unique and still set yourself up for one verse two, which has been very, very successful since you established that when you brought the conference game back, you brought the conference title game back, you put in one verse two and it has worked in your favor, frankly, just about every year. You want to say OSU, Baylor didn't because OSU didn't get to the playoff. There's still argument that they might not have because Alabama beat Georgia. The point is, that is the goal. And if one, if you're going to do one versus two, there is zero reason for doing divisions whatsoever. Well, I, I agree with that. Um, I think that's fair. It, it, and I, the reason I brought up the yours is less traditional is I, I agree that like the thinking here should be less traditional. Like I almost think one of the advantages that the Big Twelve could maintain or could could create is flexible scheduling, not just within the conference but outside the conference. You know, like the ability to schedule a game the following season because, hey, this is a non-conference team that's really good, but we don't expect them to be good. Like, you almost want to get to where that's what the conference says they want to establish. Like, yeah, we get that it's not the best and that there's been, you know, games scheduled out 10, 15 years in advance. But it's probably within our best interest to every year try to figure out the best flexibility for scheduling so that we can get great games in conference out of conference. I also think you go to a eight-game conference schedule. Um, you know, I, I, I think the SEC does it right. Um, I don't think the difference between getting to a playoff and not getting to a playoff is an extra conference game. I think it only creates uh, more tension in getting to the playoff. Uh, I think eight conference games is proven by the SEC to be the right number, and I'd like to see them mirror that. And there's a lot of, like, analytics on that, too, in terms of you're, you're going to be in a better position every year to get to the playoff with eight conference games. So, yeah, 100% agree that – this is a new era of college athletics. And so because of that, you need new thinking and, uh, and you need to be thinking about scheduling and, and all these other things in a different light. Because again, it's, it's really all about, as we've been talking about throughout the show, how do you create the greatest amount of value within your television partners? 
Do you, so that's always been my question with the, the nine versus eight. What's more valuable? An extra conference game? So if you do that, you if you do an extra conference game, you're going to have six games, right? If you have an extra non-conference game, you have 12 games. What's more valuable? Six conference games or 12 non-conference games? My other issue has been, if you do that, you have almost have to guarantee that you're going to schedule up. You can't go out and schedule, okay, where everyone's going to add a UTEP and a South Alabama because my concern, and I and you have to think this way to be devil's advocate, if the perception of the Big 12 is taking a hit with Oklahoma and Texas leaving, do you still almost have to adopt more of the American mindset of we have to make sure we have two to three really good non-conference games to sell ourselves on and it almost ends up working out back against you like i are you, you're asking if the big 12 is good enough no i think they're good enough perception matters right and the big 12 is already going to deal with an issue of the espn is going to pump the sec left white and right and sideways fox if when they sign the Big Ten is going to push the Big Ten left, right, and sideways. Depending upon where the Big 12 is, you're not going to be the major, the conference that either side pushes aggressively. So you're already going to be working from behind from a perception standpoint. What model, at the end of the day, gets you the most money? That's all I, like, that's the, so that's that's where I get to is, when you go to Fox or ESPN or CBS or whatever to sell your conference, what do you guys want? Do you guys want nine conference games or do you want four non-conference games? Whichever guys you, th- whatever you're going to pay more for, that's what we, that's what we will decide to give you. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's an interesting way to look at it. And look, I mean, I, I just think more times than not, the less conference games you have, the more opportunity you're going to have to get, to get in the playoff. Like, I, I just think, that the, the SEC proves it every year. Now the perception is the SEC a lot different, but um, yeah, certainly you can make the case though, that it's more impactful from a television revenue standpoint to uh, have more conference games. But uh, I just don't know that it's like makes that much of a difference. And if the difference here is between like one less conference game might mean X for um, you know television revenue, but you know, what mean, but means why in terms of percentages of getting to playoff, I just think it's more important to plan on the playoff than it would be to plan on the money. Because I, I don't know that there's that much of a difference in money. Now, maybe I'm wrong. It's one extra game within the conference every year. And that's, so that's, I mean, that's add that up. That's, that's substantial. Um, but I, I just don't think like you're going to live on the, that money. Like you got to figure out other ways to be creative about, television revenue yeah no i agree there it's not just going to be well we've got nine conference games and so that's what you know that's going to be our best path there's just there's a lot and again so all these conversations we're having is a lot of things that the new commissioner is going to have to figure out like what ends up being the best thing for the big 12 long term i i I see the value in eight and i see the value in nine the sec is going to end up going to nine when they once they expand like or else you're oh he's never going to play florida they're going to be there for a decade and they'll never even see the teams and half the conference like the Big Ten is at, is at nine. The Pac-12 is at nine. The ACC is going to be, unless the ACC does it too, like would be the only one left with eight conference games. And I mean, they get more playoff. They get more teams in bowl games because of it, but it hasn't, it doesn't change my perception that the ACC is not any good. 
Like, I don't think the ACC is better because they play eight conference games and play an extra non-conference game. They might get a few more bowl teams, but it's still Clemson and everybody else. Like, so, and so that's been my whole thing with like going back to eight for the big 12. Like the SEC, I almost hate using the SEC as an example because it's almost an outlier because of all the other things that impact the SEC and its perception and reputation than just whether they play eight or nine games. It does help the SEC to play eight conference games. But they are, again, I, I have a hard time saying like, well, this is what works for the SEC. I almost think you have to look at the Pac-12 and the ACC as a better comp for how things might go. I don't see the Pac-12 or the ACC better one way or the other because one plays eight and one plays nine. So a couple of things on this. Um, when it comes to the future viability of the conference, figuring out ways to maximize television revenue is paramount, right? So like, just again, we've, we've labored that point, but that is gotta be when it comes down to uh, interviews being done for this position. Like it's, it's gotta be that, you know, where, where's revenue? You know, well, how are you gonna maximize revenue? That kind of stuff. Like that's, that's, that's line one, okay? In terms of, you know, the, the SEC or the Pac-12 ACC thing, like, I almost feel like you got to cart your own path because I don't, I don't know that they're as viable long-term as they think they are. Oh, I agree. I, I, I agree. And the, the Pac-12 more so because the only thing that protects them right now is geography. And I don't think that's going to protect them as much as it does now in the near future. Exactly. And, and again, as we talked about, like one day Clemson wakes up and says, why are we in the ACC? We're losing all this money to our biggest competitors in the SEC and we're going to be falling fo- so far behind. You know, if that happens, all of a sudden they're they're off. And what what's the ACC do? So, the Big Twelve is at an advantage as we've discussed because they've already, you know, you've hit rock bottom to a certain degree. You've already lost your your you know your major money makers for your conference, and so now now you're trying to figure out how to maximize your revenue without those without those programs. That's not what the Pac-12 and the ACC are tasked with doing right now. They're tasked with doing what the other conferences are doing, and you know they still have their breadwinners in their conference and so they don't have the disadvantage that the big 12 has but again i think that ends up being an advantage for the conference because the acc and the pac-12 have to plan around clemson and florida state and usc and oregon whereas the big 12 can now be totally creative in terms of the way it's going to structure its deal and how it's going to come up with revenue and blah 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 so I, I don't know that I would follow the other conferences because they, they have a different reality and a different path than the Big 12 does. Good points. All of them. Uh, Ari, I know you got to go and uh, go a little longer than we planned, but that's okay. This has been fun and exciting. I always love getting you on. Uh, do me a favor, man. Plug away. Where can everybody check out all the stuff you do covering uh, the Big 12 as well as Kansas and the Dallas Cowboys and everything else that you do? Yeah, I have a few a few jobs. Uh, but yeah, check out SiriusXM, Big 12 Radio. I appreciate you giving me the platform here and what you do um, uh, w- w- with your network um, and the work you put in to help promote the conference and, and all the great programs in this conference. I know we spent a lot of time talking about Texas and Oklahoma and tent pole, you know, programs. But, um, you know, it, 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 the lifeblood of college athletics is in the rest of the remaining schools. You know, the, the importance of college football, Manhattan, Kansas, and in Stillwater, Oklahoma, right? Like these are things that matter to a lot of people. And because of that, 
um, will make this conference viable for a long time. Um, but yeah, check out SiriusXM's Big 12 Radio. Um, and we've got Bob Bowlesby on Thursday at 9.30. And, uh, and yeah, I'm on Twitter at RE Sports, A-R-I Sports. So here we go. Follow Ari. Does a great job. I always appreciate it, man. Really do. Thank you so much for always. Thank you. Always hopping on appreciate and being supportive. Uh, and we will get you back on again at some point. Sounds good. Absolutely. This is Brandon Phoenix, a.k.a. I also hate Pitt, joined by my brother, Jeremy J.N. Fiend Phoenix. We are the Raspy Voice Kids. We do the Raspy Voice Kids podcast. If you love West Virginia University, you will love our podcast. If you don't care about West Virginia University, you will love our pop culture segment. It begins every single episode. You can join in the fun anytime, anyplace. Get at your boys. All right, so... We've had this interview that we've been going to do for a while and just finding the right time. And this seemed like the right time. Obviously, Bob Bowles, we kind of threw a wrench into that, but we'll talk about that plenty on this episode as well. Um, recruiting, it's becoming a bigger, I mean, it's always been a huge deal, but it's a bigger and a bigger and a bigger and a bigger deal every single year. It becomes more complicated. And so I really wanted to find somebody who we could talk about the current state and the future of recruiting with. And who better than Brian Bedford, uh, who owns and operates Recruit Route. Brian, welcome to the show, man. Yeah, man. I am uh, thrilled to be here and uh, love talking college sports and recruiting. So uh, let's have some fun more than anything. Uh, Brian, I, I, some Big 12 fans may be at least somewhat familiar with you because you have worked in the Big 12 before, specifically at TCU. Kind of give me, before we talk about what Recruit Red is, kind of give me your background in college football and college athletics recruiting. Yeah, sure. Um so, you know, I've been in and around this space for 25 years um, in, a, in a variety of different ways. The, the most probably um, the way that that kind of manifests itself more than anything is, um, you know, early in my career, uh, I had an opportunity to work on the team side of, um, and as you mentioned, you know, I, I worked small college football in Division Two and started football programs at that level, as well as um, also, um, you know, spent some time on Gary Patterson's staff as director of recruiting in the early 2000s. And so um, that's kind of been, that's always kind of been a chapter of my career that I just never been able to walk fully away from. Like I always keep coming back to elements of things that I did from starting a program or whatever it may be. So those, those are always, you know, those are fun to kind of, you know, think about and, and so forth. Uh, and then I, I, you know, I don't know if I got smart or whatever it was, but I got out of that, the, the world of, of, of college athletics and, and went to kind of the vendor and technology side of it and went to a company called Exos Digital, which has later been acquired by a company called Catapult. And they were kind of the preeminent leader in all things technology, video, from websites to content rights to um, instant replay. Um, yes, I'm the guy that introduced instant replay into the big 12 you probably didn't even know that philip no, um no. and uh and uh, and uh, and things like you know how they uh, analyze and manipulate video at different teams or you know building out the whole video review uh system that is in dallas today all that kind of stuff um so yeah i've just and i and i've kind of been crisscrossing the world of tech and team sports and college and um Spent some time uh, in, in, you know, uh, in Fortune 50 tech as well, and then the last almost six years now running Recruit Route, 
which started kind of as a hobby, probably much like this podcast. And it's really grown legs and really been interesting to kind of see what we've done with um, what's happening around the world of recruiting and the transfer portal and super seniors and COVID and NIL and so forth. And so, um, yeah, it's been, been quite the fun journey. That's for sure. So you're the one we have to blame for games going longer because of replay. Cool. Very nice, Brian. Uh, yep. That's all <laughs> me, dude. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, so you own and operate uh, the CEO of Recruit Route, uh, which you and I have talked about quite a bit. And I think is really interesting. It's one of the reasons I wanted to get you on. Kind of explain what this is. Yeah. So, so before I explain what it is, let me tell you what we're trying to solve for, because I think that helps set some context behind the, what it is. It's more of the, why are we doing this? Yeah. So over the years, I would just have buddies that would call me Philip and say, Hey, my son or daughter want to play football, basketball, soccer, whatever it is, baseball in college. Uh, little Johnny wants to try to play. How does this work? And we've never been through it. We're a first, you know, these, this is our oldest child or whatever the scenario was. Um, or, it, you know, we played at that, we played at the college level, but it's really different than when I went through it, you know, 20, 25 years ago, whatever the story was that would happen from a parent. And so that question, as you can imagine, once you've been kind of behind the paywall and you see how it actually works and kind of the you know, the sausage making of recruiting happens, that question would happen every month, every, maybe not every week, but it was happening all the time throughout my time away from being a director of recruiting. And, uh, you know, all along, there are different third-party services, there are technology companies, there's, you know, the advent of social media popped up along the way, um, these little doodads called a cell phone and, you know, everything that goes with them. All of those things have really changed a lot of kind of how that experience fully um, works. And you know, I'm probably even dating myself a little bit here as just a full-blown Gen Xer. But um, I, I, those conversations led me down a path of saying there's Right now, there's actually so much information out there around recruiting, like, how do you make sense of it? And it's, it's uh, we've kind of oversaturated our knowledge base when it comes to recruiting. And so just taking all of that, like all of that context setting, um, I ended up, you know, I'd help a couple of people kind of just ad hoc, they would call, I had some family friends that went through it at a pretty senior high, you know, like, you know, major college level, um, but it, it never really stuck. And um, I, I, I then had a family that um, was a good family friend and their son went through the recruiting, you know, same thing. He wants to play. How does this work? We don't know what we're doing. We need a, we need a Sherpa basically to take us on this kind of quest of Mount Everest. And uh, we went through the process and that was great. He, ended up having a really good career and, and is super successful now professionally and all that kind of stuff. But along that journey, um, his dad, who I know very well, um, get, said something to me, which, I mean, at the time I was kind of like, what you jerk, but he said, man, I know you and I still should have paid you for helping us. <laughs> and I was like, thanks for the backhanded compliment, man. But um, what that meant and he meant that in the most genuine way 
like we couldn't have done this without your help. And so you have a lot of knowledge, you know, kind of the intellectual property of the recruiting process that has value. So long story short, and I'm kind of maybe going long winded, but I think it's important for people to understand that I came at it the world of recruiting, knowing that there are some bad actors out there. There's different interpretations of the world of recruiting. There's all these different technologies that are out there. And I was like, I just want to serve and help people. I genuinely want to provide a service to people in the sense of like, there are lots of parents that are confused and kids have no clue, even though they think they do. And now, even to this day, we go forward with, um, with the coaches that we're starting to work with high school coaches and club coaches. And uh, they really are just desperate for the right kind of knowledge. So what we've done now, let's get to what it is. That's the why. Now what it is, the, what it is, is recruit route is a family of offerings, um, recruit route, recruit route, elite transfer route. And now we've recently introduced teams route. Those are all a kind of a group of family think of them as like the Marriott brand of courtyard and Fairfield <laughs> and all those different Marriott's um, but uh, recruit route is a family of brands that um, depending on kind of the level of service provides you a combination of um, expert delivered content new newsletters workshops one-on-one engagement one-on-one interaction with me and our staff um, access to a set of tools that allow you to manage the recruiting process. Um, think of it like a big kind of CRM system for recruiting um, and allows you to have access to contact phone numbers, contact emails and so forth for up to 50,000 college coaches in the country. So if you literally want, you know, to reach out to a coach, you have their office phone number and, you know, email. I'm not saying that you should do that today. So, but you know, you have access to that. You have to understand kind of how to leverage some of these tools, but you also have the ability to search for different types of academic information, enrollment information, cost in state, out of state, um, admissions requirements. Um, and uh, you kind of package all that up into kind of a level levels of service, so to speak, Philip, that, um, that, that, uh, that meet the need. And our most popular thing that we do is really what we call recruit route elite or transfer route, either one of them just depends on if you're a kid in the portal or going to the portal or you're a high school kid or a middle school or whatever, really don't middle school, but you know, they take that sophomore, junior, senior, many families are really crying out and saying, Hey, we need help. We, we need a guide to kind of walk us through. It's getting more and more complicated. And we really saw that happen through COVID because the whole landscape of recruiting really changed because you went 20 months where you could have no personal interaction with coaches due to all the different NCA policies. You then introduced NIL. You also introduced the one-time transfer portal. So you put all of that that happened basically at the same time. And just created so much disruption. And so us trying to meet that need of really trying to be the Sherpa, I use that a lot, a travel guide that, you know, think of it in whatever manner you want to. Um, that's what we're really trying to solve because it's not getting less complicated. And uh, so anyways, that's the, that's the why and that's the what. So hopefully it helps give some context to you, Philip. So when you and I first talked, you know, I, I, I admit I didn't play. 
Um, so a lot of my, everything I do comes mostly from a fan perspective and, and any other sure. new perspectives I gather are from other people. It's why I love talking to different individuals like yourself. Um, it helps me grow my understanding of, of all of this stuff. Sure. And I think for most fan perspectives, we very much view recruiting from the fan side. We're excited about a kid who wants to come. We're trying to deal with the idea of like, it's not as big a deal when a kid wants to transfer. Like it's very much that side. And so we focus more on like these top athletes we're excited about. And oh, look at this three-star kid. We're all just, everyone's missed on him. We're about to get a stud. You just have no idea. Yeah. And I don't think most people realize how complicated it actually is on the backside. I really don't. Like, I, I know that we are told that a lot. A lot of fans are, that there's a lot behind this, but we take things at very face value. And so what intrigued me most about what you guys do is this idea of there's all these kids across all levels, D1, uh, you know, FBS, FCS, yeah. P5, G5, D2, D3, who just, this process is so much more complicated and so difficult. And just, and... For every five-star kid that's gone through all the camps and everybody knows about, there's hundreds of three-star kids who could be really good who just don't even know how to make themselves seen or make sure that coaches find out about them. Um, so I, I, what, what I really want you to do is kind of walk me through the experiences of these parents and these kids who aren't the ones we all know about. You know, like a kid who's going to end up becoming some NFL starter, some first round pick who started as you know the three star no one knew about or the former walk-on or whatever yeah well first of all let me let me touch on something that i thought was interesting that you mentioned if i was to take you to and let's just i think most of your audience is kind of geared towards football so we're just going to talk football for just a minute here yeah if i was to take you out on a friday night and watch a three-star kid played football he might be the best kid you've ever seen in your life play high school football that's how good a three-star kid is okay you've never probably ever seen in person a five-star high school football recruit. i've been doing this 25 years i mean to see it at one up close i mean they don't look like normal human beings like walking down the road okay these are like legit unicorn human beings okay they do not look like normal men and women. And I'm a big guy. I'm 6'2", 235-ish, um, you know, <laughs> one of those deals, right? And, uh, and, and they, they make me look small or whatever you, whatever you want to say, okay? So um, let's start there because most people, you know, don't, you're, you, you know, if you're just a parent or a casual observer, you're in your local town or community, you've not seen one of those kids. So, you know, a lot of people will, you know, poo-poo the, oh, he's just a three-star kid. Man, I'm going to tell you what, like that kid is a baller. Okay. Um, but so let's start there. And we can talk about the whole star system in a minute. But let's get to your question, which is like, how does the process work? So I'm going to use, I'm going to correlate it to sales because we all have to, we're all kind of, somewhat associated with sales, whether that's, you know, you go to Chipotle and you buy something, you're part of the sales process in retail, or you go to Target and you buy the thing that you don't need when you go to Target, right? We're part of the retail sales process, okay? So, um, or, you know, any other example that you want to use. So think about it that way. 
Philip, any idea how many high school football players there are in the United States alone? Do you have any idea? <laughs> oh, man. Um, I would say let's go, and this is going to be lowballing the number, more than 150,000. You're way off. Okay. It's almost 1.1 million high school football players. I said I was lowballing it. I'd rather lowball than overshoot. Yeah, you're 10% <laughs> of the number. Okay. So just think about that, right? So 1.1 million is, um, I mean, that's the size of a tier one city in the United States, like a tier one market, like a top 15 market is what 1.1 million people is, okay? So, so that's your baseline. I mean, you have to start there in just the US, let alone there are kids literally playing football in all over the world, right? Uh, American football, they're playing all over the world. So, but if you just take the US market, which again is still 98% of the kids that play American football, are coming from the U.S. Um, you got a few in Canada and Germany, and you'll have the random kid that'll be in, you know, Sweden that's six seven, three fifty, and he's just some freak or whatever, right? You'll have a few of those kids, or you have the punter from Australia or whatever it is, right? We've all seen some of those situations, but bulk of ninety eight percent of those kids are going to come from the U.S. So again, one point one million, let's say leads, okay, that you have to then filter from. Okay, so just think about it as like it, the most macro view. Um, out of that, the data would tell you that at the division one level, not the, not, I'm not talking about power five, big 12, SEC, but at the division one level, um, the math would tell you that 2% of the 1.1 million kids actually get recruited at that level. 2%. So that's what the data is. I'll, throw some, yes, I'll just do some math. <clears throat> in 2020, there was um, 130 FBS football programs, right? Yep. If they all maxed out the 85 scholarship limit, it's 11,050 players. Right. So 11,050 players, I'm not even going to try and calculate, divided by 1.1 million. But math in my head says that is a fraction. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's you know, almost 1% to 2%. Okay. So you're dealing with like a really narrow needle that you have to weave to kind of make sure that you fit there. Okay. So that's the first thing. Okay. So again, just think about it through the traditional like sales funnel. If you're selling vacuum cleaners, you've got your territory, you know, zip codes, you dial for dollars, you start with a hundred leads, you whittle that down to 10 active leads and you're trying to sell, you know, 30% uh, of your 10 active leads. That's kind of how it works. Okay. So it's, that's the same process that they go through. Now, there's refinement that go with that. So how they start and refine, they don't literally start with 1.1 million kids, but I'm giving you that as the baseline. Where they start uh, typically is through a couple of different exercises that the coaches do on a year round basis. So obviously the recruiting staffs are exponentially larger than when I was doing this as a one man band and a couple of students that came in when I was at TCU. Um, now there's full-blown staffs that are um, doing this, and there are um, 
all the different third-party recruiting media outlets that are out there from on three to rivals to 24 seven. And they're fine. They're media outlets, literally media outlets. So, but they're a data point. And then there are um, third-party evaluators or services that the schools use to find the top seventh, eighth, and ninth grader in the country. So if you're Nick Saban and you don't want to put your all of your eggs into kind of scouting the middle school market, but you want to get a leg up on Georgia or Florida and find the top ninth graders so you can early identify them, there are companies out there that do that as a paid service. Um, and, and you as a parent or you as a recruiter, even most high school coaches don't even know what many of those entities are and exist. I actually created one of those companies. So I know, you know, I know that I know how that actually works. Um, so all of that being that plus, you know, when you hear coaches are coming by schools or coaches are on the road, well, they're not out there just lollygagging or taking the selfie now in the weight room with the head football coach or doing push-ups like, you know, Harbaugh, uh, you know, at Michigan, they're, they're actually doing work. And so they're looking, uh, they're kind of continually, uh, when they're out in the evaluation period, they're actually sourcing information on each class. Who's your top junior? Who's your top sophomore? Who's your top freshman? Do you have a good eighth grader coming up that's going to be a stud? And then they're gathering that. And it's kind of manual because they're gathering that kind of in the field. Okay. So think of it like a, uh, think of it like how we collect data on the census as an example. Their coaches are going out on the road. So when you hear them say, you know, I was at South Grant, I was at South Grand Prairie or, you know, uh, South Lake Carroll, or I was at, you know, Booker T. Washington in Tulsa, or I was at Bentonville High School or whatever it was. Part of what they're doing is, you know, they might be looking at a kid who's in the current class, but they could really be looking at a kid one, two, three years down the road. Now, they can't always have conversations with all those things, but let's just say they got a stud freshman that's sitting there at Jinx High School in Tulsa. Doesn't mean that Brent Venables can't be in the weight room with the OU hoodie and the Jordan swag, and he's standing right there while that kid's working out, even though he can't talk to him yet formally, make sure that he knows he's there. So there's all sorts of like method to the madness to go to recruiting. So it starts with, you know, big data of lots of people, lots of kids, lots of information coming from the field, third-party services, media outlets, high school coaches making recommendations, them sourcing, evaluating film, then they're whittling that down. Um, depending on the program, some schools will tell you it's a, you know, for every one recruit. I was on yesterday and the guy was talking about like at the FCS level, they, if they need three offensive linemen, they're offering 30 kids for three spots. So, you know, it's like a 10 to one ratio, not every program. I mean, if you're at a Oklahoma and you know that, you know, you can't put that many offers out there, you'll have kids that you can't take, um, you know, you just, you couldn't commit them all. So you, you would, you'll be a little more picky. Alabama's really picky. There's like, there's a couple, there's a whole nother echelon, like Alabama, Georgia, Oklahoma, Notre Dame, Ohio state. There's a couple of five, six schools that can do, they do it a little bit differently than the rest of the country. But the bottom line is you start with this huge funnel of people, you're evaluating, you're gathering data, you're making evaluations, um, you're getting all the staff involved and included in the process, and then ultimately you're offering. 
and and courting them and keep courting them until National Signing Day. And so that whole process is a, you know, it's a really complicated sales funnel. That's the easiest way to think about it. Got it. Okay. Um, you mentioned something about star rankings, and obviously it's become a, a big just part of the language of recruiting is five star, four star, three star. Um, we all pay attention to two, four, seven. I think rivals. I know on three is kind of growing. You you harped on them as a as a media company, and they are like they they are like any media company. Your your point is to generate clicks and views to to generate revenue, right? Yep. But they've become such a a vocal part of recruiting that that they feel very important to all of us paying attention because of the star rating. I'm curious from your perspective, from a from the coach's side, how much does their opinion actually matter and impact recruiting? And how, what what percentage would you give them as actually being a part of the process that 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 is used as far as coaches evaluating players actually getting recruited? Where, where do they fall within that? Yeah. So I think there's a couple of different things that I would peel the onion back on. From a pure evaluation perspective, I would say by and large, it matters very little. However, depending on the market and depending on, you know, which recruiting guy at which school, some of those guys have an eye for talent and can eyeball kids and have a back channel to recruiting staffs. Um, and so sometimes they will tip guys off and say, hey, I was at this seven on seven or I talked to this coach and have you heard about this kid? And he might be like a ninth grader. 10th grader, but that they maybe have not early identified. So that stuff happens more frequently now than it probably did 10 to 15 years ago. And I'll, and I'll get to why that happens in just a minute, but the, who we should offer and that kind of stuff, the, those guys have little to do with that. Uh, because it's about fit and system. And so, you know, a kid and how they quantify the value they place on certain positions. Um, certain schools really value track times. Baylor is a great example. If you're a corner, a receiver, a running back, and you're not running track, they're probably not offering you. They want to, you know, you, you know, as a corner, you probably need to be a 10-8 guy in 100, or they're not offering you because they need to see the flat out, flat out speed. That's what they value. Um, Gary, they played a lot of man coverage in the four, two, five, when we're at TCU. So those corners have got to be really good in man. And so, and they probably need to be a 10, seven, 10, 800 meter guy. And if you're in a, you know, if you run 11 flat, you're winning just about every track meet in the state of Texas or Oklahoma, unless you're at like the big, big, big schools in Houston or Dallas, like you'd win any three, eight, four, eight, five, eight track meet, probably running a 10, nine or an 11 and a hundred especially in Oklahoma, you would. Okay. So like these kids are super fast, right. But might not be quite fast enough. Cause again, you're only dealing with one or 2% here back to kind of our original analogy. Um, so the other piece of it that they are helpful is they do actually provides again, some back channel. Hey, here's what I'm hearing 
because I I interviewed Johnny and he talked about his visit to AM and LSU. And so I just, you know, some of it I'm going to publish, but I wanted you to kind of hear the off the record conversation a little bit. That stuff happens. Um, I'm not going to say it doesn't. Um, so they have built kind of this, it's kind of a interesting, you know, uh, it's kind of an interesting place where I think on early identification, they can provide and be a resource to the recruiting staffs. And then I think down the road, when it comes to like commitments and that kind of thing, I think there's probably some back channel there, which again, I'm not sure, like if I'm in the media and a true member of the media, not a fan, which I think the lines get blurred when you look at recruiting guys in fandom, if I'm being very honest. Um, because again, they're, they're playing both sides of the coin as far as trying to be an expert, but also kind of appease the fandom that goes with their sites because that's how they monetize them. Um, I think it, it serves as an interesting one, but um, yeah, they're used more in probably those two ways than I think in the, because the true, like, are we going to offer a kid process? I mean, those guys will have no bearing on that at all. And, and the part that I find funny is depending on which school ends up seeing value in the kid, you know, has a, you know, if Georgia offers a kid, oh, well, he's automatically, you know, okay. He's that kid's a four-star kid. Georgia offered him. Okay. Well, you know, it was just, he just had a Tulsa and a uh, SMU offer, but uh, OU likes him for whatever reason. Oh, okay, well, now he's a three-star, even though he's a two-star a week ago. You know, like that stuff I find kind of funny to me because it's kind of play – it's kind of playing into the whole fandom thing, but I get it. I get it. Brian, you've been awesome. Um, I'm going to get you out of here, but first I want to ask this. Um, obviously, you get a lot of questions, and trust me, we're going to have you back on because I've got plenty we want to talk about. We're not even going to touch the transfer portal today, and that's just – that's a – a barrel of monkeys. A wacky world into itself. Uh, on the transfer portal, I'll just say this to tease you. Think about this. We talked about the numbers and the data, one to two percent, division one, blah, blah, blah. Out of that one to two percent, high school kids, the number of scholarships going to high school kids is down about 25 to 30 percent of the one to two percent. So there you go. I'll leave you with that one. But sorry, because I interrupted you. No, you're good. That's I, I, it felt like it was growing in that direction, but that is a staggering number. We're going to talk about that more next time. Uh, but I do want to ask this. Obviously, you get asked a lot of questions by parents and a lot of questions by recruits. What is the one question you get the most that us as as fans might be most surprised by? Oh, just, you know, how do I, how, how do I, how do I get college coaches attention? It's really more, they want to play the exposure game. And that's the question that I probably get the most. I mean, I'm looking at a questionnaire right now from a workshop I did last night. It's like, how do I reach out to college coaches? You know, what camps to go to? How do I prep? You know, how do I engage? What's the right way to formally talk to a coach? Um, and we talk a lot about controlling the process. You see me use the hashtag a bunch, follow the plan, because I'm trying to teach kids how to have adult conversations that don't include gifts, emojis, and memes. Like, you know, learn to write, learn how to leave a voicemail, learn how to, you know, communicate in full, complete sentences. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's a whole process that, you know, if you're a, you know, a, a you know, 15, 16, 17, 18 year old young man or woman, um, 
you know, and depending on your background and where you come from, like some of that stuff can be really foreign to you. And it feels very normal to us as maybe adults, you know, I'm in my mid forties. So I'm kind of used to communicating this way for many kids. It's a really a mobile experience and it's a different kind of experience. And so, you know, they're not used to that. And so they really struggle with how they have, how and uh, ways to handle communication. So that's probably the most common question that I get. And it comes from a lot of kids because they're kind of chasing the exposure game. And what I would tell them is like, listen, just go be the best dude you can be. Like you got to be a ball player and you got to have great grades. And if you just focus on those two things, then all of that other stuff will be a derivative of it. It'll be a byproduct of it. But they have a hard time, you know, kind of following the Philadelphia 76ers trust the process process. Um, but it's really the way to do it. But it's not sexy, if I'm being honest with you. Yeah, no, I get it. Um, Brian, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. We are going to do this again. Uh, do me a favor, plug. Uh, where can everybody check out Recruit Route? And if if you're a parent, I don't know how many parents I have to listen, uh, who's got a kid who's interested in recruiting and not just in football, across all yeah. sports, um, where can they learn more about you and Recruit Route? And recruit yeah, route? follow us on Twitter, recruit underscore route. Um, and um, you can go to recruit-route.com and uh, all of our offerings, capabilities. We've got a great section on of blogs that include lots of cool things like um, we've got a master list of all the camps and you've retweeted that a bunch across the country. Um, we've got recordings of sessions that we've done, all sorts of cool things. So check out recruit-route.com. Uh, this past season alone, you guys have played some kids at Arkansas, TCU, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Utah, Tulsa, uh, Missouri State, North Dakota State. So if you're a parent, go check it out. It just It's worth the time to go and at least just poke around the website uh i believe brian's dms are open if they if they just want to hit they them. are legit open thank <laughs> you never hurts to, to dm brian uh brian man seriously we're gonna get you back on i've got so many questions i think a lot of people are gonna have a lot of questions as well so thanks awesome. for your time bud yep Podcast Network.